Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I'm your host, digital editor Al Lunsford, joined today by my co-host, once again, Joe Passoff. Joe, today we are talking the next major championship uh, for the men's schedule. We are going to Boston, Massachusetts, or the area at least, Brookline, Massachusetts, and playing the fourth U.S. Open all-time at the Country Club at Brookline, or the, just the Country Club, as many know it. Before we start, I know this is a, a club steeped in history. In fact, you just did a piece for us recently uh, ranking it amongst the, the 10 most historic country clubs, maybe even top, in the top five uh, in America. Where in the world are we? And uh, if you could just encapsulate what Brookline means to the history of the game in America, tall task, but I think you're the guy to do it. What, what, what does this club really mean to the significance of the game of golf? Well, I'll give it my best effort, Al. You know, we throw the word historic around maybe a bit too easily, but the country club is not just historic, it's practically royalty. I mean, if American courses were able to have the royal prefix like they do in Britain, the country club would be first in line. So why do I say that? Well, for starters, the name, the country club. Okay, to some, that kind of sounds a little pretentious, right? It's not Brookline Country Club. It's not Phoenix Country Club. It's just the country club. Well, there's a good reason for that. It was the nation's very first country club, meaning... It was a club outside the city where everybody lived and congregated and said, let's go out a ways and we're going to have this facility devoted to all kinds of sporting pursuits. And in the earliest days of the country club, which was chartered in 1860, but never really established until 1882, um, all kinds of sporting activities took place there. Horse racing, horse riding. Those were the primary attractions, but they had a shooting range, a little bit of early tennis, croquet, and then they got finally got around to adding golf and some other things. But you think about history and you think, this is it. This is the first country club. In addition, it hosted probably the most gigantic golf event of the first 50 years of the sport in America. We will cover that, the 1913 U.S. Open. Finally, beyond that, it's just located in such a historic place. I mean, you can call it suburban Boston in the suburb of Brookline, but I mean, it's right next to Boston. It's not like it's 40 minutes outside of town. It's five minutes outside of town. In fact, you know, we mentioned at the onset, um, it's about 15 minutes away from the Old North Church. You know, Paul Revere, the Midnight Ride and all that. For modern sports fans, about 15 minutes from Fenway Park. For the Boston Red Sox. So Boston is one of our most historic cities in America. The country club fits right in. Again, yes, it's historic, but man, it's practically royal. I like, uh, for reference, I'm, I'm staring at a piece right now, and, and Joe asked me to look through the archives here at Lynx, because before the 1999 Ryder Cup, the Battle of Brookline, as we all know it now, Lynx was previewing that particular event and i'm staring at a piece 
on the Country Club by one Joseph Mark Passoff from the September October 1999 edition, profiling the the club ahead of the Ryder Cup. And and your first line is a very good example of trying to encapsulate that historic significance where you say some classic courses are steeped in history. The Country Club in Brookline, Mass is drenched in it. Now, I don't know if everyone knows. I loved the the background that you gave where it was more of an equestrian club. In fact, you even had some instances where horseback riders and golfers had to battle for uh, position on the fairways. And in fact, the uh, horse track at Brookline surrounded the first and 18th holes uh, when those were built as well. So hoof marks on greens were not an uncommon occurrence, I think, <laughs> is what you talked about. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, talk about your turf wars. I mean, you know, you had the old timers at the club, you know, the equestrian set saying, hey, I want to be able to go wherever I want to go on my horse. And you had these newfangled golfers saying, wait a minute, they're ruining our putting greens. And, uh, and, and hey, I'm trying to hit here. So it must have been quite a confrontation back in the day. Right. Yeah. And in fact, it, it's significant that the U.S. Open returns here. The country club has a very tight and, and long-standing relationship with the USGA. In fact, uh, it was one of the five founding members of the United States Golf Association uh, back in the 1890s. Uh, I read this stat looking up uh, some history on, on the the country club it is since 1900 it has hosted at least one usga championship and 12 of the 13 decades since so it means a lot to that organization and it means a lot to have a major championship return here for the first time since 1988 Uh, the last event here was the 2013 us amateur uh, won by matthew fitzpatrick I'm sure that will be talked about a lot uh, with several of those players in the field at the U.S. Open in June. Maybe the very first uh, and most significant event here at the Country Club. Uh, It was profiled in a book by Mark Frost, later a Disney movie starring Shia LaBeouf, the greatest game ever played about a 20-year-old local who caddied at the club, Francis We Met. Many of you probably know the story, but... Joe, let, let's hear it again. What happened in 1913 at the U.S. Open? Well, yeah, what was significant about it, you know, is that you had two of the great players of the day uh, who were heavy favorites to win the tournament, and they played wonderfully. And that would be who many consider the greatest player of the era, Harry Barden. All those Open championships, and, and uh, he had won the U.S. Open in 1900. And then you had Ted Ray, another English professional who wasn't quite as good as J.H. Taylor and James Braid. Those were the three guys with Harry Varden that made up the great triumvirate. But Ted Ray was one of the best players in the day. But what you also had going on in Francis We Met, as you mentioned, he had caddied at the club. He lived in the neighborhood um, and he entered the tournament, had to take time off from He's a working stiff. He grew up with pretty modest means. That's why he was a caddy at the club. So the fact that he even came close as things went down to the stretch, went down the stretch, yeah, you know, it's a phenomenal story. 
Now, it was much more difficult to report what was going on in a live golf tournament in 1913. So you didn't have the breathless announcers and on-course reporters documenting everything for you, plus a live blog going on and with your favorite media folk. You just had to rely on the newspaper reports. So what happened was this 20-year-old local lad named Francis we met winds up birdieing the 17th hole and, and ultimately tying Varden and Ray and going to a playoff, an 18-hole playoff the next day, which, is, which was what was done in those days. And not only was Francis we met kind of a, a young working guy who had caddied at the club, his own caddy. Eddie Lowry, <laughs> 10 years old. All right, I'll lower my voice a little bit, but think about that. Think about somebody in today's game having some little kid, 10 years old, trying to hoist the bag around in the greatest tournament going on in the United States. So in the end, we do know the story. Mark Frost told it beautifully in the book, The Greatest Game Ever Played. If you haven't read it in a while, haul it out again you know, before this tournament. But what Francis we met did was dominate the playoff, shooting an even par 72 and beating Varden and Ray pretty handily. So not only was it an incredible story, probably the greatest upset in golf history until maybe Jack Fleck upset Ben Hogan at the 1955 US Open, but it also showed the world that there was talent real talent outside the British Isles, you know, that, that had a big effect. And the fact that we met was, you know, grew up in modest surroundings. He wasn't a blue blood said to the rest of the nation, Hey, maybe golf isn't just for blue bloods and wealthy people. Maybe anybody and everybody can play. And you really started to see cities take an active role in de developing municipal golf courses. Public golf really began to take off after this. So it was a significant tournament for many, many reasons in the growth of golf in the United States. If you've been paying attention to the, the way the course is going to be set up this year, you may have seen that they're bringing back a hole, a, a short par three hole uh, that has a lot of significance to that 1913 U.S. Open. In fact, it hasn't been used in a U.S. Open since then. Uh, it is a hole that in the playoff, things really changed and went in we met's favor as he parred uh varden and ray did one worse than him and and he would go on to win that tournament we'll get into a little bit of that and and the course how that is set up uh and the changes that are present going into this year's u.s open but first let's keep going kind of down the line um the bigger events that have been there at brookline uh, you have 1963, Julius Boros getting a U.S. Open championship, and, and then 1988, Curtis Strange. Uh, interestingly, all three of those U.S. Opens were 18-hole playoffs. Now, the USGA has since changed. Uh, if you go into a playoff now, it's a two-hole aggregate playoff scenario that was instituted in 2018, but this is from an article from Doug Ferguson, the U.S. Open is the major that has gone the longest since its last playoff, the last playoff being 2008, Tiger and Rocco that went to 19 holes the next day. So you may have a perfect storm brewing where we could get a playoff here 
at Brookline. It has a history of doing that to these competitions uh, and producing a lot of drama-filled moments. Joe, I don't know if you want to say anything about those other two U.S. Opens or if you want to jump straight to maybe the event that sticks out most in people's minds at Brookline, that 1999 Ryder Cup. Well, I can give a quick note on the two previous U.S. Opens because when people look back at the record book and one of the things that jumps out about the 1963 U.S. Open was the winning score. It was plus nine, 293. And you're like, holy cow, what a hard golf course, you know, bordering on fair. I mean, on, on unfair. Well, you have two famous names, Arnold Palmer and Julius Boros, and then Jackie Cupid, who was a pretty good player in the day. But uh, that there was an asterisk with that score. They had abnormally high wins for much of that tournament that led to some abnormally high scores. And in addition, they had had some really, unfortunately, poor course conditions. Uh, back in the day before, you know, we had the science that we do uh, in terms of maintaining a golf course, they had a, a really late, a, a, a very late icy storm, you know, in winter, early spring, and it didn't leave a lot of healthy grass around, which affected both fairway lies and putting. So that, that's the little asterisk I'll throw in with the, the 1963 U.S. Open. Trivia bus, of course, Arnold Palmer met his demise on the then 11th hole when he drove into a tree stump. And uh, kind of a classically bizarre thing to happen in the U.S. Open. And 1988 was just a great tournament. You had two of the best players in the world meet up head-to-head -head in a playoff, Curtis Strange and Nick Faldo. And, uh, and Strange, I mean, they were both steely competitors. And Strange was up to the task a little bit more than Faldo was. Beat him 71-75 to 75 in the playoff. But that was, Curtis got up and down on the final hole of regulation from the bunker at 18 to make that playoff. I mean, that's, that's guts uh, to be able to do that under those circumstances. So, you know, you did have a lot of interesting open history before that, but nobody remembers too much of those two U S opens compared to what happened in 1999. Yeah. And we, uh, I think a lot of people know that uh, scenario off the top of their heads, at least certainly uh, how much the, Europeans had had things under control over the first couple of days, 10-6 lead heading into singles uh, before you have an impassioned and um, fortuitous speech from uh, Captain Ben Crenshaw, feeling good, had a good feeling about what might happen in the Sunday singles. Yeah, he wasn't so good at picking shirts, uh, in, in my <laughs> opinion. The fashion sense, uh, you know, it's... Uh, not sure about that one, but that yeah. actually, yeah, you're right. That might actually be the thing that people remember most was those, <laughs> those shirts. Uh, but my, he, re he remarked, I'm a big believer in fate. And as you said, I, he, Ben said, I've got a feeling about this one. And of course, Ben had special reverence for the country club because as a 16 year old, he played in the U.S. junior amateur held at the country club in 1968. And he says that's what really jump-started his interest in golf history and classic golf architecture. So the country club already meant something important to him. 
Uh, and of course he played in the 1988 US Open. But uh, yeah, 1999, he needed an impassioned captain's speech. And lo and behold, Sunday dawned and the Americans, boy, we didn't used to say this very often, but the Americans came through in remarkable, dramatic style. They flipped the script right away. They won the first seven matches and went down from down 10-6 to up 13-10 and pretty much had control of it over there. Uh, a lot of people will most likely remember the moment from that Ryder Cup is that famous Justin Leonard putt that ultimately led to victory there as well. Uh, and the pandemonium that ensued there. They may remember also the, the crowds just being electric particularly when you're making that comeback. It's a raucous, passion-filled crowd there in Boston. They love their sports. Um, so I'm sure we'll see a good showing here at the U.S. Open. Let's go now into the course itself. Joe, you got the chance to play before that Ryder Cup uh, and see it at in attendance there in 1999. Willie Campbell, credited with the original design for the main course, uh, from 1895, you have nine holes then added by William Flynn in 1927 uh, to make it a 27-hole complex. It is known as a composite course, something if you haven't heard that term. I'll ask Joe about that uh, once we kind of get over the broad overview. But in this issue where we previewed the Ryder Cup back then, the course evaluation was Typically northeastern, tree-lined, moderately rolling, small with well-bunkered greens, exposed outcroppings, and a nice variety of reachable par fours and fives. Now, I don't know if that's something you could say of the course as it currently stands, but Joe, in your evaluation, what kind of test does the country club present? Well, it will present certainly an effective test for these guys. You know, technology has changed immeasurably. Well, they do measure it actually. So maybe I'm wrong about that. But from 1999, from 1988, the club knew, the USGA knew that to take this tournament back to the country club, there had to be some changes. And that's nothing new at the country club. For all of its history, there's never been a whole lot of reverence for keeping things status quo with the layout and design of the golf course. So you know, in all those years, and we'll touch on the various aspects, but as a test of golf, if you grow up the rough the way the USGA likes it to place an emphasis on premium driving, the greens are not as small as they once were. Gil Hans, in his master plan of 2009, wound up executing in ahead of the 2013 US Amateur, yanked out a bunch of trees to open up some vistas, to restore some width and angles and also restored the size of some of the greens that had really, to be fair, shrunk to become too small. They're still small compared to a lot of greens that we see these days, and, and that's so New England-like, but now you have a little more square footage, but also some clever contours and roll-offs on the sides and edges that will continue to place a premium on approach shots. So as a test of golf, it should stand up just fine. It's been lengthened now um, to just over 7,200 yards uh, for this U.S. Open. It's going to play as a par 70, which 1913 was a par 73. Those 
Next two U.S. Opens, it was a 71. So now we're going to 70. And I mentioned that term, composite course. So you've got the 27 holes there at the Country Club. Typically, the main routing, uh, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that was the routing that they used in 1913. Uh, and then once you had the additional nine, uh, known as the Primrose Nine, and fun fact, you'll see the yellow clubhouse there at the Country Club when you watch the U.S. Open. Uh, that shade of yellow is known as Primrose. So there you go. You can impress somebody uh, that you're watching the Open with there that week. But uh, for this particular tournament, they've decided to use 15, I believe it is, holes from the main course and three from the Primrose Nine, making that aggregate 18 uh, a composite layout. So I think you may have gotten an understanding of what that means, but Joe, could you spell out that you did a piece for us in a recent issue on composite courses uh, and some other ones around the world that have been used. Just kind of what does that mean and where else have we seen that used in tournament play? A composite course, which isn't done too often, but it's actually done a little more than we might think it is utilizing golf holes on the property to make for the best championship routing. So it may borrow from a next nine holes that are adjacent to your course, or maybe you have three nines and you make up your championship course from holes from all three nines. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. So where we saw it first was here at the country club. Ahead of the 1957 U.S. Amateur, you know, actually ahead of this 2022 U.S. Open, I spoke with the country club's head professional, Brendan Walsh, and he says that in the 1950s, the club members talked about needing a longer, more challenging golf course for national championships. Four decades had passed since the 1913 U.S. Open, and they came up with a composite course. Of course, the course that they came up with was pretty unusual. So in a nutshell, yeah, that's all it is. It's like a collection of all-star holes. And it's either done to make for logistics, meaning walking and crowd control and so forth, just make it easier on, on everybody. Or it's to balance the course a little bit as well as it can be. The old country club setup, even the most recent composite course in 1999 um, for, for a professional tournament was really imbalanced. 3,200 yards on the front nine and 3,700 yards on the back nine. So this year's version will balance that out a little bit better. But the country club is unique, Al. And when you mentioned that 15 holes from the main course are going to be used on the championship course and three holes from the primrose course, no, that's not quite right. I don't know if you were a math major, but this is what's so odd about this composite course. There are four holes from the Primrose course that are going to be utilized because they combine two holes on the Primrose course into one hole on the championship course. And that's the way it's been done since 1957. So Primrose one and two for many years were combined, a short par four and a short par three over water were combined into a tough par four. And that used to be the 11th hole on most of the setups. This year, it will be the 13th hole. That idea came from a woman named Ginny Pearson, 
who is the wife of Charlie Pearson, a club member and USGA vice president. So if you can picture kind of 1956, everybody's sitting around with a cup of coffee or a cocktail. Hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to make two holes in one, you know, like the old Lifesaver commercial or whatever that was. I know it's just a bizarre concept to think about, but that's what they did. And it makes for one of the great championship par fours. So that's what you'll see this year. And as composite courses go, two years later, Royal Melbourne in Australia invented their version of the composite course for what was known as the Canada Cup, became the World Cup. But again, it was all about safety and spectator and player aspects as far as where you needed to walk to get from one hole to the next. And at Royal Melbourne, in the original versions, you had to cross a couple of roads that eventually turned into busy roads. So with their two courses, the West and the East, they use the best combination of holes to form a composite course. Those aren't the only two composite courses out there, but they're the two most famous courses. All right. You, you got me on the technicality there for the country club in terms of the number of holes being used well, I didn't, the primrose. <laughs> I didn't tell you there would be math on, on today's assignment, so you're, you're forgiven. Fair enough. So back in when you got the chance to play it before the Ryder Cup, you played, you told me, with Reese Jones, um, who came in and, and made some uh, renovations to, to the course ahead of that. Uh, was it ahead of the 88 U.S. Open that he did that? That's um, correct. Yeah. 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 That would have been uh, 1985. What did you learn from that round from him, from the man himself who kind of reshaped things there at Brookline? Well, it was a big deal in 1985 leading up into the 1988 U.S. Open for architecture purposes, because although the term restoration had been coined and had been done a little bit here and there, it never had jumped into the popular vernacular until 1988 U.S. Open. And what Reese Jones did in calling it a restoration is it wasn't replicating exactly what was done. But I remember what Reese told me at the time was we really did bring that golf course back to Willie Campbell's original design style. We expanded the greens, we rebuilt them, we relocated the bunkers, we rebuilt tees, added length, incorporated different kinds of grasses. So note that he said, we brought the course back to Willie Campbell's original design style. That really meant it was a sympathetic restoration as opposed to a pure restoration, meaning Reese restored features that had been there and been lost over time or help recreate some of them that had been lost over time. But by the same token, he had to adapt the course for where people were hitting the golf ball in 1985 and 1988. So he wanted to emulate that original style because it was original and it fit the ground so well. What we were doing in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s was not restoring our great golf courses. And Reese's dad, was Robert Trent Jones, was one of the guys that would simply remake a golf course in his own mind on how it should be for challenge of today's players. 
without worrying too much about whether it fit in in the original design or the current design. It was really, how do we test these guys today? So that set off a movement that is going even stronger today. And ultimately, when Gil Hance was brought in, um, who has had a phenomenal track record over these last 10, 15, even 20 years, we have the technology to do even more accurate restorations. So it, it continues the tradition of at least paying our respects to the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Gil is definitely known as one of those uh, masters of restoration. In an article from the USGA, uh, they talked about how he used images uh, from when the country club hosted the 1934 U.S. Amateur to reestablish some of those lost features, uh, restore the, the greens and the bunkers to kind of what it looked like, you know, almost 90 years ago. And I think what the, um, the product that people will see at this U.S. Open is um, uh, how a classic design will uh, stand up to the modern day player. And, and what kind of trouble some of these guys that just decide to drive it over everything in sight uh, will get into. Um, so I think some, some of what you described and, and how the, the green will run off into places that uh, will get you in, in a situation you don't want to be in, um, you'll see a lot of that stuff as, as these guys try to figure out uh, a course that they, for the most part, have, have never seen. Exactly. I think what this will be similar to, Al, is what we went through in 2013 when the U.S. Open came back to Marion. Marion and the Country Club are both smaller properties, okay? Um, holes that are close together, more classic architecture involved than some of the newer, stronger tests and much longer tests. If it rains cats and dogs, you know, the rough will thicken up, but... I think it's going to play easier. But if there is enough run out on the firm fairways into rough, into the, some of those funky angles that the country club has, um, it's going to be a real learning test, an education for these guys on strategy. Well, we can't wait to see it. It's going to be a very intriguing test uh, and will be a welcome uh, return there to the suburbs of Boston. So thanks, Joe, for your insights. On Brookline. I want to take you now uh, from suburban Boston to the topic of our question of the week here, our topic. Uh, this time we got our readers to respond to a question on a recent newsletter about their favorite Oceanside golf course. I spoke to Joe before we started recording here and said, you know, I, I know I, I'm, I didn't really prepare you for this one, um, so it may require a little bit of thought uh, and Joe was quick to say, actually, it doesn't. So in terms of your favorite Oceanside design, Joe, uh, where do you go? Cypress Point Club in Pebble Beach, California, on Monterey's 17 mile, the Monterey Peninsula 17 mile drive. Uh, you know what? I, I go really one, two. I don't know if it's a one A and a one B with Cypress and Pebble, but Pebble has more Oceanside holes and they're magnificent because they sit up high and overlook the cliffs. And certainly there's no com more compelling, you know, shot 
uh, basically than the eighth hole at Pebble Beach. Cypress Point only has three holes directly on the water, but because of the way the holes are laid out through the forest, through the dunes, and then you take this walk through a path and all of a sudden you arrive at the tiny par 315, which plays over the ocean to a green ringed so gorgeously by Alistair McKenzie Bunkers. And you're like, okay, I didn't think it could really need to get any better, but it just went up to another level. So between 15, 16, and 17, and Cypress Point, eh, you can edit out whatever you want to edit out. That's my clear favorite Oceanside Golf Course. Well, I think it would probably influence my answer if I did get the chance to play there one day. Um, but it's being so clear and obvious for you. I mean, that that tells you everything you need to know about what kind of experience that is at Cypress Point. Um, if you'd like my answer, I, I can hear you. You're beckoning for what I have to say here. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to give you two. As I like to do, I'm, I'm going to give you a, kind of a different end of the spectrum here. Uh, my first one is a course that's perched above on cliffs, uh, staring at Pacific Ocean. Uh, I got the chance to play Sheep Ranch uh, not, not long after it opened the most recent course there at Bandon Dunes Golf Resort, uh, and it was just magnificent. Uh, staring down at some of, uh, you see people creating artwork in the sand below you, um, hundreds of feet below, uh, getting the chance to play that at sunrise, being the first off the tee, uh, was an unforgettable scene. The opposite end of that spectrum is a course that can literally, uh, you can be lapped at by waves on the beach and that's teeth of the dog down in the Dominican Republic. Uh, the Heaven 7 from Pete Dye, there are seven holes right there on the Caribbean Sea. And it's just a magnificent playing experience that we get to go check out every single year with Lynx. Uh, but something that should be added to everyone's uh, bucket list, I think, to go play one of Pete Dye's, uh, maybe the Pete Dye masterpiece in the Caribbean. Well, I'll say this, Al, those are two great choices. I mean, no bad, you know, when you're playing up uh, and overlooking the ocean. Right. But Pete, but Pete Dye always said Teeth of the Dog was his favorite of all his designs. You get the chance to play from the beach there if you want to. And yeah, if the, if the waves are rocking, you can stand on a couple of tee box and get splashed. So um I don't know if they allow you to play in your bathing suit, but I guess it could, wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. Um, you're probably there on vacation anyways. So playing that top 100 layout in the sun waves crashing. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really cool vibe. All right. We're going to pop over and share some of our reader answers to this question and learn some of their favorite Oceanside golf courses here. Uh, we had a lot of great answers. Thanks again. Pay attention to our Sunday newsletter every week for a new poll. We're sharing some answers there on the previous week's newsletter and also here on the podcast. So Oceanside Golf Courses, lots to choose from. Let's dive right in. Stephen A. is thinking South Carolina, Kiowa Islands Ocean Course. Even in benign winds, which is rare, 
This beautiful stretch of holes are demanding and challenging to even the most superb golfer, as we saw in the PGA Championship last year. William K. says, Eastward Ho in Chatham, Mass., a Donald Ross design that offers beautiful views of the Atlantic and a fantastic golf challenge. John C. with a course that we at one point called the most spectacular course in the world. That was a cover story. Uh, I know Joe remembers this from a long time ago. Old Head, views of the ocean on almost every hole, cliffs, the Irish Sea, seabirds, seals, even a lighthouse. It doesn't get much better than this. David P. is going to pick another of the courses at Bandon to pick off of, and he used our photo that we included on the newsletter as his inspiration. He said, you have a photo of it, so I have to pick Pacific Dunes, because in 2010, I made a hole-in-one on that par three. It was the 11th hole that was on our newsletter. Congrats, David. Hopefully that brought back a good memory for you. Some of these I haven't heard of. Russ A. says, the Sea Ranch Golf Links. Sonoma County Coast, California, a small hidden gym with wide fairways and punishing rough, defended by coastal winds. That's one I don't know about, so I'll have to check that one out. Thanks, Russ. Seeing a lot of familiar names here. Fisher's Island, St. Andrews, of course. Plenty of people saying Pebble Beach. Brian M. says Cape Wickham because it is both mystical and magical. It is a journey to get there and an even greater journey to play. It leaves you awestruck and wanting to play it again and again. A bucket list course not to be missed. I'm going to hit a few more here. Near St. Andrews, Rod G says, King's Barnes, a most cathartic experience. As one ambles along the Oceanside Fairways, the nefarious interruptions of life fade away, and you become one with nature to the point that golf is secondary. That might be one my father would agree with. I remember him saying... Uh, He did a Perry golf trip to Scotland a while back, and he said, you know, other than the old course at St. Andrews, it was King's Barnes that that made the biggest impression on him. Mark L. says, Kavira in Cabo St. Lucas, a Jack Nicklaus design, dramatic elevation changes, and Pacific Ocean views on every single hole. My wife also got a hole-in-one on the signature Oceanside 6th. That makes me wonder how many of these people picked because they have that fond memory of A hole-in-one, a birdie, uh, something special that happened that made the round even more memorable. Last one, I'm going to go with Don S. He says, Baja Mar, just below Tijuana. He says, it's kind of a pain to get to, but the staff and the course are amazing. They did a stay-and-play years ago. They had 27 holes, nine that headed toward the beach, and four directly along the beach. Two par fours, one par three, and a par five. On the par three, you had to judge the waves on this little outcrop, or you and your ball would get wet even before you tried to go across the water's edge to the green. Awesome responses. Once again, you guys are great. Keep sending them in. We'd love to hear more. With that, Joe, I think we'll conclude our conversation for today. Uh, The U.S. Open at the Country Club at Brookline is June 16th through the 19th, 2022. Who will win? We shall see. But thank you, Joe, for all your time and, and work. And thanks for writing that piece in 1999 that helped me prepare for our conversation today. I look forward to the next one. Yeah, me too, Al. Uh, I love my golf history. And I think anybody that reads and listens to anything associated with Lynx Magazine loves their golf history and tradition. And the country club is going to provide another healthy dose of that this year. Absolutely. All right. Until next time, Joe. 
Fair to play.